Welcome back to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in markets and explore the forces shaping investing. I'm your host, Catherine Kress. With the U.S. election just a few weeks away, what are the key issues we should be tracking, and how might the result impact markets? Today, Mike Pyle, BlackRock's chief investment strategist, walks through three different scenarios to plan for. He'll share his views on the implications of these scenarios for macro policy, as well as his thinking on how the elections might impact sectors like healthcare, technology, and energy, given the potential for regulatory reform. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You worked for five years in the Obama White House, really at the center of the president's economic team. So needless to say, you've spent a fair share of your career thinking about politics and how policymaking can influence economic and market outcomes. With this in mind, I'd like to get a better understanding of how you're thinking about politics today and specifically the upcoming elections in the U.S., The election this year, at least as I see it, looks to be one of the most consequential elections in modern history. Would you agree with that? As a follow-up, what would you say makes this year different? So I clearly think it's an extraordinarily consequential election. First, the country is facing a pretty historic degree of interlocking crises or challenges at this moment. 2020 has certainly presented all of the crisis and challenge associated with the coronavirus pandemic, the catastrophic human toll that that has placed on the United States and so many Americans. Secondly, the economic crisis that has come as a result of the coronavirus crisis, that we've come out of the worst of it, but there's a long way back and a lot of households, small businesses, larger businesses still really grappling with that challenge in pretty profound ways. Third, 2020 has been a year of social unrest, social change, demands for justice in ways that we haven't seen in this country probably in my lifetime. And then lastly, looking out over the longer term, we see the climate crisis and that that is an accelerating challenge, a challenge that is with every passing day more and more upon us i say the other thing that makes this so consequential, of course, is the really stark divergences in terms of the two parties' policy platforms. So the stakes are high in terms of the issues we face. The stakes are high in terms of the divergent perspectives that the two parties, the two candidates bring to those. The one other thing I would say, you mentioned my background in policy and politics. I'd say one thing that's different, I was in the White House in 2012 during the re-election campaign. And one of the things that I felt as part of that experience is in the final months, there comes a moment when you recognize that you've kind of gotten done what you're going to get done in terms of policy. There are no more legislative opportunities, very little by way of things that could be done by executive authority. And you're kind of handing it off to a campaign to go persuade the American people that you've done the right things and done enough of the right things to merit re-election. I think it's a slightly different environment this time where because of these crises that are unfolding in real time, policy still matters right now. Even if the path is very narrow, 
We still see live negotiations around additional economic relief. Obviously, the ongoing public health challenge requires countless decisions by governments, including the federal government, day in and day out. So I think just one big thing that's different today versus 2012 is precisely because of the unfolding, interlocking crises that the country faces. Mike, that's super insightful. Policymakers are still trying to get so much done, but it's in the midst of an election season. And so that can certainly complicate things and influence decision making. But we're right now just a few weeks away from November 3rd. So as we think about the range of election outcomes, what would you say are the key scenarios that you're planning for? So there are three scenarios that we're really tracking. We're tracking the likelihood of a status quo election where President Trump is reelected. Congress remains in divided hands with Democrats control the House, Republicans and the Senate. Secondly, tracking the likelihood for a Biden win with unified government with Democrats in control of both the House and the Senate. And lastly, tracking the likelihood of a Biden win in the presidential race with divided governments in Congress, with the Senate remaining in Republican hands. When we look at the polls, we see three things. We see a national race that looks as if it has a material advantage now for Vice President Biden. Secondly, we see a race that's been extraordinarily stable for the past several months, four, five, six months. And that compares to the significant volatility that we saw in the polling in 2016. It's much more stable than that. Is striking in light of the interlocking crises that the country is facing in 2020. And it's striking how stable the polling has been, even in the face of historic events. But third, President Trump continues to run somewhat stronger in some of the decisive states than the nation as a whole, which continues to put the potential for President Trump to be reelected through a narrow win in the Electoral College, even given pretty material lead for Vice President Biden in the national polls. So that's for the presidential contest. What about the Senate race? On the Senate side, I think something actually quite consequential has happened over the last week to 10 days. We've seen the polls nationally, which had favored Vice President Biden nationally, widen out by an additional couple of points, probably on the heels of the debate in light of President Trump's COVID diagnosis. That has taken the Senate from a setup where, to our eyes, it looked more like a toss-up to the place as a result of those kind of couple of points difference in the national environment, where it leans a little more significantly Democratic. The big question over the next week, two weeks, is whether we see the overall national environment revert back to the national lead that we'd seen for four or five, six months before this, or whether this larger lead is the new normal. That's going to make a good deal of difference about how we think about the likelihood of the presidential race, how we think about the likelihood of contested election scenarios post the election, and how we think about the environment in the Senate, which, as we'll get into, I suspect, is going to be extraordinarily consequential for defining the policy pathways post the election with huge consequences for markets and asset allocation as well. 
I found it interesting that you noted just how stable the polls have been. Because one thing I've been reading a little bit about too is just how small the number of undecided voters is this year relative to previous years, which indicates that that polling may indeed remain more stable moving forward. So as we move on to some of the policy implications of these different scenarios, it's clear given how far apart the parties are in terms of their policy priorities, that each of the scenarios that you mentioned could have really different implications for the policy outlook. What are some of the key areas in your view where we could see meaningful policy change? Which ones are you paying most attention to? So we're tracking five big macro policy areas across each of those three scenarios, macro policy areas that we think have top-down consequences for global economics and global financial markets. Those five are stimulus and ongoing coronavirus relief, public investment, tax, the regulatory environment, and then foreign policy, including U.S.-China relations and trade. Some of those will turn based just on the result of the White House, in particular the regulatory environment, foreign policy environment. Some of those require Congress and the president working together, anything related to do with fiscal policy, either on the public investment side or on the tax side. And so how are we thinking about it? First, with respect to the issues really in the hands of the executive branch, in the hands of the president, we think that the regulatory approach under a President Biden would be considerably more stringent than we would expect under a second Trump term or deregulation has really been the touchstone of the past four years. We think that's going to matter a lot for the energy sector. But I'd like to also sort of point out that we think it could be quite consequential for the tech sector. Renewed energy around things like antitrust, renewed energy around things like privacy is really putting the technology center front and center in the regulatory conversation. And that's particularly important because the handful of, in particular, mega cap technology names in the U.S. have been such an important part of overall market performance, both this year and recent years. And a change in the regulatory environment there could mean a much different operating environment, a much different financial environment for those companies. Secondly, on the foreign policy and trade side, one of the things we've talked about is the ways in which there's been a bipartisan shift on China in a direction more towards strategic competition, towards rivalry. So our expectation is regardless of who wins in November, we're likely to see a much more competitive, significantly more aggressive posture towards China than we've seen in past decades. That said, we think that a Biden administration would be different than a Trump administration, both in its emphasis on working with allies, but also in terms of providing greater transparency, greater predictability about the framework that it's bringing to bear on U.S.-China relations, on trade, what have you. In some ways, it's been the uncertainty and unpredictability of the Trump approach that has been the biggest source of volatility in markets as a result of this change direction on China. And so on balance, we think that a similarly tough but more predictable framework on U.S.-China relations trade policy is probably a market positive. You just discussed regulation and foreign policy, two areas that are largely driven by the executive branch. But it seems that some of the other issues you mentioned, especially in the fiscal space, 
will require more participation from the legislative branch or Congress. Yeah, so going to the areas that require legislation, this is where the Senate becomes so consequential. We could see quite substantial changes, both in terms of tax policy, but also in terms of the scale of stimulus and public investment that we see. Obviously, in divided government scenarios, perhaps especially under a President Biden, we wouldn't expect a great deal of movement on the big fiscal policy questions. Maybe some capacity in a Trump re-election scenario for some additional relief, but what we've seen really just over the past couple of months and the struggles to get a phase four stimulus deal done ahead of the election highlights that even in a status quo election, it's going to be really hard to get additional fiscal policy over the line. So what we're really talking about is a Biden unified government scenario just being categorically different than the other two. The interesting thing I would say is, I think during the summer in particular, there was a lot of focus on the tax pieces of the Biden agenda and what that could mean in a unified government scenario. The likelihood of higher corporate tax rates, that likelihood of higher capital gains tax rates of of other transitions and individual taxation. And I don't think investors are wrong to pay attention to that. I do think that that's likely to happen. There are likely to be changes in a democratic scenario. Taxes are likely to move higher. That is likely to flow through to corporate bottom lines. And in particular, again, given some of the tax changes that are being proposed on the international tax front, you could see particular headwinds to some of the larger tech firms, to some of the pharma firms. But the thing we've been saying again and again is it's right and fine to sort of focus on those bottom line impacts. But you shouldn't ignore the top line impacts of a much more aggressive posture around additional stimulus, a much more aggressive posture around public investment, whether it's in infrastructure or clean energy or R&D. We think that that kind of scale of fiscal impulse, of public investment impulse you would see from a unified Biden scenario would have pretty profound implications for the top line for overall economic growth in the economy, for growth in earnings for firms large and small, to really accelerating the U.S. back to something like potential output and beyond. That's a big difference. And we think that when investors take too much of a tax-centric approach, too much of a bottom-line-centric approach, they're missing what could be the big fiscal policy story is the impact on the top line, on revenue, on growth, and the overall economy and on businesses. Mike, I want to follow up on your fiscal outlook. You mentioned that this is an area where the Senate really matters. It's clear when we think about the Senate outlook, we could have a situation where we have 49 Democratic senators or we could have 50 Democratic senators or more. How do you think about the impact of that difference in the actual Senate makeup when you think about the overarching fiscal outlook and potential for stimulus moving forward? That's a great question. The single biggest question is who has control of the Senate? And that is going to create the biggest difference in policy outcomes. The difference between 49 Democratic senators and 50 Democratic senators plus a tie-breaking vote from a new vice president is extraordinarily large in terms of the types of policy outcomes that we can expect. I mean, I think some of our back-of-the-envelope thinking suggests that that difference alone could amount to a difference on the order of three, four, five percentage points of GDP and additional 
stimulus and public investment over each of the next two to three years. Just one or two Senate seats can really make a very profound difference in terms of the macroeconomic policy environment we step into post-January around coronavirus relief, around public investment, around just major change on infrastructure, clean energy, R&D, as well as just basic support for households and small businesses and states and localities. So it's clear it's not just a consequential election, but it's likely to be very close. And so we have to track all of these issues closely. But on that note, we've seen so many pieces written, so many analysts and experts commenting on the risk of a contested election and what that might mean for volatility in financial markets. I know the three themes that we've been thinking about along these lines are one, potential disruption to the mechanics of the election, just given the uncertainty that the COVID pandemic has injected into the elections. The second being a potential delay in the tally and actual announcement of the election results. Election day could become election week, just depending on how quickly the actual votes are counted and the ways in which states manage election. And then third, the risk of potential disputes, just given how close the election could be. So I want to get a sense from you as to how you're thinking about this risk of a contested election and what that might mean for volatility in markets. Well, we've certainly seen volatility markets respond to the likelihood and evolving assessment of risks around the prospect for a contested U.S. election. So that's clearly happening in terms of market pricing. I think we acknowledge that we are, as a country, conducting an election in a historic moment, a moment unlike really any other that we've attempted to conduct a presidential election in. And that is introducing a host of challenges to the setup. I think in our base case, precisely as you said, because of appropriately a lot of people transitioning to voting by mail, voting absentee as opposed to voting in person in order to stay safe, we do expect that there are likely to be some delays in counting votes, including in some of the key states, places like Pennsylvania. I think our base case is we see resolution of the election. We know who the next president's going to be, but it may not happen on election night. It may take two or three days to get to a place where the results are clear, the results are counted, the major networks and other observers begin to call the election. That's kind of our base case. What do you see as the risks to our base case? We see risks on both sides of that. In terms of getting clarity on an election result, I think there are going to be a lot of eyes on places like Florida, which will count its ballots both mail-in and in person on election night. We should have a pretty clear sense three or four hours after the polls close who's won Florida. And if it's outside of the automatic recount margin, and if that happens to be Vice President Biden, I think we're going to get a pretty clear sense of which way the election is likely to go, precisely because it's very hard to construct maps where President Trump can win in the absence of having Florida. So that, I think, is an outcome where you could see a lot more clarity sooner than in our base case. And then, of course, on the other side, there's the risk that a number of these decisive states, especially in the upper Midwest, decided by narrow margins, decided by margins of mail-in ballots, maybe margins of mail-in ballots that have been excluded for one reason or another. And that's the type of scenario that brings in 
significant litigation risks, significant risks of state legislatures and state courts getting significantly involved, significant risk of Congress and the Supreme Court ultimately getting involved. I think it's very hard to trace what exactly would transpire in that situation. But all that said, I make two final observations. One, this is part of the reason why I think this question that I posed earlier about whether or not this widening out of the polls that we've seen over the last seven to 10 days, whether that proves to be durable, which path we take could be pretty consequential here. Volatility markets have begun to settle a little bit in the past couple of days, looking out into November and December volatility pricing. I think that's partly because in a world where Vice President Biden's leading by 10 points as opposed to seven and a half points, markets, I think, appropriately are assessing that the risk of a contested election is significantly reduced. It's going to be very important to see over the next little bit of time whether we stay where we are, we revert back to that prior mean. The other thing I would say is I do think that we have conviction that ultimately we're going to see a resolution. There is going to be a president who is sworn in on January 20th. We have conviction that that's going to be a result that's generally accepted and seen as legitimate. And as a result of that, from an investment perspective, we believe that any volatility on the heels of the risk of a contested election, the actuality of a contested election, that by and large is going to be something that may be uncomfortable in the moment, but is going to be best looked through by long-term investors who keep their long-term goals in mind, who, if anything, use the volatility to maybe add to high conviction positions, but really something to look through and keep those long-term goals in mind. Mike, that's very refreshing to hear your view that we will ultimately get to some form of a resolution. So building on that last point you just made in terms of seeing through some of the noise, seeing through some of the uncertainty, what are the key investment themes that you're thinking about that you think investors should be prepared to move on in the aftermath of the election? The first would be to look at international equities, perhaps especially places like emerging market equities. We think, especially in a scenario where we see a Biden win, where we see a unified democratic government, that should be a pretty favorable environment for global cyclical exposures. We think we could see quite an acceleration of that fiscal impulse, quite an acceleration of global recovery, particularly perhaps when paired with a vaccine in 2021. And places like the emerging markets, perhaps especially when paired with a more certain foreign policy and trade environment, which of course has been such a source of uncertainty and volatility over the past four years, that to us looks like a place that's interesting in the face of a Biden win with unified government. Secondly, we'd say within U.S. equities, a Biden win with unified government is potentially a real cause to see a rotation in leadership and the U.S. stock markets. The past few quarters, even the past few years, has really been characterized by this very pronounced tech outperformance. And even within that, this very pronounced outperformance of the handful of mega cap names in the technology space. We think that that sort of election and policy scenario could lead to a pretty substantial reordering of leadership within the U.S. equity market, as I was talking about, for reasons like antitrust regulation for reasons like tax policy changes that could pose particular headwinds 
to the U.S. tech mega caps, we see more by way of headwinds there to ongoing outperformance. On the flip side, I think we see that kind of big push on fiscal, that big push on public investment, leading to a much more kind of bottom-up growth picture in terms of the U.S. restart and recovery, and as a result, more of a bottom-up led U.S. equity market. So looking to places like small cap U.S. stocks, looking to places even like an equally weighted S&P 500, those are exposures to us that look as if they have more significant tailwinds behind them in that kind of scenario. You know, in a world where President Trump is reelected, in a world where we see divided governments, you know, a world where we see less of that big kind of fiscal rotation on the policy side, I think that to us is a little bit more of a what we've seen is what we're likely to continue to see. So to us, the knife's edge is around leadership in the U.S. equity market and whether we should expect to see more of the same or a much more profound transformation in what's leading the U.S. equity market. So the first two themes are international equities and leadership in the U.S. equity market. What about the fixed income market? There too, the big divergences are between a Biden United government scenario and the others, where the big reflationary impulse that we could see on the fiscal policy side and that unified government scenario could be pretty important for causing U.S. yield curves to steepen, causing the long end of the curve to sell off a touch, break-evens could widen. We think that the big impact would be a pretty significant rally in a place like TIPS, both because We do think inflation expectations would move somewhat higher on the back of a view that particularly combined with the fiscal stimulus, the Fed would be likely to achieve its objectives of a modest to moderate inflation overshoot in the years ahead. But then in particular, because the Fed is also likely to be pretty aggressive in not letting financial conditions tighten, not allowing the long end of the U.S. yield curve to sell off too aggressively. But a lot of that adjustment is going to come on the real interest rate side, is going to come through tips and through tips rallying, given the real interest rate exposure there. Mike, thanks so much for your insights today. I know you mentioned these are unprecedented and uncertain times. So I'm looking forward to speaking with you in a few weeks to see how all of this plays out. Absolutely. I can't wait to continue the conversation. Thanks for having me. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. 
authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Registered Office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL. Telephone, plus 44-020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.